Good evening. I hope you had a blessed Lord's Day. I know Lisa and I had a restful day, and I trust that the Lord has blessed you here on, on his Sabbath day. Tonight we'll be looking at uh, the book of Galatians in the fifth chapter. We've been plugging along at a good pace, and we come now to really a beautiful chapter. Um, some of the great portions of Scripture are here in this text, and I have the privilege of opening with the first six verses. It'll be Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. I'll read it, and I'll pray and ask the Lord to bless us. Beginning in verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man that accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless us. Heavenly Father, help us tonight to accept, to receive Christ Jesus as He is freely offered to us in the gospel. Lord, I pray that our faith may be pure, that we would be untrusting of all of the things in this world, untrusting even of ourselves and our ability, but solely and completely trusting in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, if I were to ask you, what are the greatest blessings that you have from Jesus? I think you would immediately begin to list off a number of them, You might think to yourself, well, adoption is a wonderful blessing that the Lord has given us, and we've seen adoption in this letter. You might think of the forgiveness of sins and that beautiful truth. You might think of simply the joy and the pleasure of being in Christ. You might think of sanctification and being filled with the Holy Spirit and continued strength each and every day in the Christian life. There's so many things we could say to that question But I wonder how many of us would say freedom. I wonder how many of us would immediately think freedom is among the chiefest, the greatest, the most precious blessings that Christ has given us. I uh, really appreciate what Calvin says. I, I quite like it. He says, It is wise and skillful persons that are aware that this is one of the most important doctrines in connection to our salvation. So if you're here tonight and you want to be wise and skillful, then this is the text for you. This text is all about the importance of the freedom that we have in Christ. You see that even from the very first verse. Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. It's, it's kind of a funny way of stating it. 
He's essentially saying you've been saved or set free for its own sake. You have been set free, so be free. That is to say, freedom itself is the blessing that Christ has given to us. And so tonight we need to ask ourselves, what kind of freedom is Paul talking about? Freedom from what? Freedom to do what? Freedom to be what? What is the purpose of this freedom and questions like this? Well, hopefully we can answer that, those questions in uh, this text tonight. I have just two points for us, two very simple points. First, freedom from the law. We as Christians have freedom from the law. Secondly, we have freedom in Christ, or I might even say freedom to Christ. Freedom from the law and freedom to Christ. Let's start with our first point, freedom from the law. Take a look with me at verse 1. It says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The text begins with a command. It's the only commandment in this entire text. We are commanded to stand firm, to be strong, to stand your ground. And Paul says very specifically, in what way are you to stand firm? You are not to submit to slavery. And included within that command, it's almost a passive voice. That is to say, something or someone is threatening your freedom. Someone wants to enslave you. Something is trying to enslave you. Slavery is, you might say, at your very doorstep. It is there. It is a present threat. And Paul is saying to the Christians in Galatia, fight it. Don't go willingly. Don't easily go back into slavery now that you've been set free. Every now and again, I make the mistake of taking my dog to the park and taking him off his leash. You're laughing because you already know where I'm going. Once I've done that, he will not submit again to my yoke of slavery, right? He's not going to come back to me. I'm going to have to chase him back and forth. He's going to fight. He's not going to come willingly. Paul is saying essentially the same thing. Stand firm. Don't go back to slavery. Well, that sounds well and good, but what kind of slavery is Paul talking about here? Uh, We need some specifics. Well, Paul has been talking about the slavery of being under the law. And if I could be even more specific, it's the slavery of trying to find a righteousness by and through the law, to try to find justification or righteousness or merit by the law itself. Paul's been talking about this for several chapters now. Recall back in chapter 3, Paul said in verse 23, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And in that verse, Paul is not describing the law as a prison, The law is not the prison. Rather, the law is the prison warden. The law is what locks us into 
a prison. The law is what locks us away. Well, how does it do this? Why does it do this? And the answer is very simple. The law is God's perfect and pure standard of justice and righteousness. And the law is always armed with God's omniscience. That is to say, He knows all things. God hears every one of our thoughts. He remembers every word that we speak. He records every action that we commit. And we're simply reminded that those under the law will be judged according to the perfect standard of God's holy law. Paul's point is really this. For sinners, the law means slavery. Therefore, do not submit again to it. Do not go back under the law. And he helps to answer why we should not do this in a variety of ways. He begins by telling us that there is only one way we get to go for salvation. There's only one of two ways that we get to go. We can either try to find salvation or righteousness under the law, or we can try to find righteousness under Christ. And those two ways, under Christ and under law, they exclude one another. They're mutually exclusive. To have one is not to have the other. To choose the one is not to choose the other. Well, Paul goes on. He says in verse 2, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. If you accept circumcision, that is to say, if you see in circumcision merit or favor, something to be earned, an obligation that must be performed, if you see it that way, if you view it in that light, what is he saying? Christ is of no advantage to you. He is no help to you. He is no benefit to you. And we need to understand rightly what Paul is saying here. He's not saying that Christ somehow becomes weak or he becomes powerless or unable. No, rather he's saying that Christ does not save the self-righteous. Christ does not save the self-righteous. It's very ironic that those who are trying the hardest to be saved according to their works, by their trying, they are excluded. No, rather, Christ comes to those who call upon Him, to those who cry out to Him. He does not come to those who trust in themselves. And this view that the Galatian Judaizers have been teaching in this church, it makes a whole number of errors, and one of those errors is around circumcision. They're presenting circumcision as if it is really about works. But if we understand circumcision rightly, circumcision isn't about works at all. Circumcision points rightly and truly to the covenant promises of God. It's a sign and a seal of God's covenant promises. You can see this even in Romans chapter 4. Talking about Abraham, Paul writes, He received the sign of circumcision as a seal 
of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. That is to say, circumcision was never about righteousness under the law. Circumcision was always about righteousness by faith. It misunderstands it from the very start. But go with me further to verse 3. Paul says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So, not only is Christ of no help to those who choose a way of salvation by the law, he's also saying, if you go down that path, you now have to keep the whole law. Circumcision is really just the start, he's saying, if you're going to view it that way. And if you want salvation by the law, then you're going to have to keep the whole law. He's simply reminding them that the law is like a contract. And once you get into it, you cannot get out of it by yourself. It becomes an obligation. It becomes a duty. You must keep your end of the bargain or you will be cursed or you will perish according to God's holy law. It's a contract that you and I cannot get out of by ourselves. So Paul is very wisely warning the Galatians. He's saying you don't know what you're getting into. You don't know what you're, you're doing to yourself. You don't see what's down the road. The law is more than just circumcision. The law deals not just with one act. It deals with all of your life. It deals with every thought, every concern, every attitude, every heart motivation, every action you could conceive. And if you aren't perfect, then you will be judged by the law and cursed as a sinner. That's his point. Gets even worse than this. He, he becomes even more sharp than that. He says in verse 4, look with me there, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Now Paul is he's speaking uh, even more sharply here, isn't he? He says if you, if you go down this way, you will be severed from Christ Himself. It's, it's almost a play on words. You who keep talking about cutting off of the skin, you're going to be cut off, don't you see? You're going to be severed. You're going to be ostracized. You are going to be left aside. It, it is, in some ways, a reminder of Christ's words where He warned that some would come to Him and say, did we not prophesy in Your name? Cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They did a lot of things. They accomplished much, and in their eyes, in the name of Christ, but they didn't know Jesus. No, you will be severed from Christ, he says, he also says, you have fallen away from grace. He's simply saying here that this is the, work, the result of works righteousness. That if you go down this path, once again, what are you doing? You are excluding yourself from the grace freely offered to you in Jesus Christ. Grace is being held out to them. 
And instead, they're choosing the other way. They're going the other path, he's saying here. There's an application that we should take from this. Because this same dynamic is at play even here in the place of grace, in the the covenant of grace, here in the church of grace. What I mean is that our covenant children, those who are here by virtue of the faith of their parents, are here and among us in the covenant of grace. And grace is held out to them. And they are blessed by the preaching of God's word and the testimony of your faith. Grace is promised to them. But they still need to receive it by faith, don't they? They still need to receive Christ. It's a tremendous blessing to be here. But faith must come. And so we must be praying for our covenant children, just as David did a few moments ago. Well, Paul goes on. These people in the church who are tempted to go down this false path of works righteousness, he says they think that they will be justified by the law. And nothing could be a more ludicrous notion than that statement. To be justified by the law. No sinner could ever be justified by the law. Do you know what it means to justify? It means to declare someone righteous. It means to say over them that person is innocent, not guilty, righteous. Let me give you a a brief scenario. Imagine that in this church there is a theft. Something has been stolen out of the lobby. Not only that, but somebody comes and makes an accusation and says, so-and-so did it. Well, what would happen? I imagine that Pastor Greco would put on his detective hat and he'd go to the cameras and he would see what took place in the lobby and he would see who the perpetrator is and he would come, perhaps even before the congregation, and if he saw that the person accused did not actually steal that item, he would say that person is innocent. He would, in a sense, justify them of that accusation. They they did not do it. The law is not going to do that about sinners. The law is not going to judge us as righteous when, in fact, we are sinners. Now, rather, on the day of judgment, when all come before God, the law will scrutinize you. It will search every crevice of your heart. It will reveal every sin that you have committed against your neighbor, yourself, and your God. On the day of judgment, you might say this, nobody is getting a pass from the law of God. The law will not show a pardon. There's not going to be a loophole. There's nothing you can do to slide by. No pseudo-righteousness you can make up. No bribe you can give. No fooling the perfect judge. The law will simply speak the truth about you. And if you are a sinner apart from Christ, it will say you are a sinner and you are guilty. 
That's what being under the law is like. That is slavery. That is bondage. And you've been set free from that in Christ. You've been redeemed. You are not under the law. You've been set free. One of the most perplexing verses in the entire Bible is Romans 4, verse 5. And it talks about God, who it says in that verse, God who justifies the ungodly. And you think to yourself, how can God do this? Is that misjustice? Is is God a, a wicked judge? How can the ungodly be declared righteous? You just go a little further in the verse. And Paul says that your faith is counted as righteousness. Your faith counts as righteousness. That is to say, in Christ, God does not judge us according to what we have done or can do, but according to the righteousness from Christ imputed to you and received by faith alone. Paul is reminding the Galatians here, if you have that, why in the world would you ever want to go back to slavery under the law? You've been set free, so stand firm and stand in grace. Second point for tonight, we have freedom in Christ or freedom to Christ. We've been Warned not to go back under the law, but positively, we should be under Christ. And here in the final two verses, Paul is describing the life as well as the hope of those that are under Christ. Look with me at verse 5. It says this, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So how did this freedom in Christ come to us? It's very simple. First, it came by the Spirit of God, not by your own power, not according to or by the flesh. No, through the Spirit who works powerfully in you. It's the praise of God. It's the Spirit who has given you new life. It's the Spirit who regenerates you, who inwardly calls you and draws you to faith, and gives you faith in Jesus Christ. He is the one who works our salvation. It's not just the Spirit, but Paul says it is, it is through the Spirit, by faith. Once again, we see, we see faith magnified here. That is the open hand before God. Faith is the recognition that we can't do That we are hopeless in and of ourselves. That we are helpless in and of ourselves. Faith, as our standards, Westminster Standards calls it, it's a resting upon Christ. Receiving Christ. Trusting in Him alone for salvation. It's not a work, but it is the anti-work, isn't it? It's not doing, it's not earning, but it is freely receiving what God graciously gives to his people. In other words, the good news of the gospel is not just that Jesus saves. It's that Jesus saves you by faith. He saves you. And what do you need to do? 
nothing. You receive him. You receive him by faith. Well, what did the Philippian jailer say? You remember in Acts chapter 16 when devastation comes to the jail and he looks to Paul and Silas and he says, what do I do? How can I be saved? Do you remember the first word that comes out of Paul's mouth? It's believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Freedom comes from faith alone in Christ alone. What is the hope? What is the hope of our freedom in Christ? Paul tells us. He says, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Let me just say, this is judgment day language once again. He's talking about the future day of judgment. On that day when the law of God, God through his law, scrutinizes all people for what they have done, you will be judged in Christ. We will be publicly declared before the entire world that we are positively and perfectly righteous. We'll be declared that by God himself, righteous in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the hope of righteousness that we wait for. Now, let me give just a very brief warning here as I speak on this topic. There are some who, looking at a text like this, or perhaps others in other places in the New Testament, who speak of an idea known as final justification. And if you've never heard of this, that is okay. Let me briefly explain what I'm talking about. These are those that would say, well, you have a a first justification when you have faith. And when you have faith, you receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and God justifies you according to that righteousness. And it's all well and good, and that is the the simple, uh, glorious Protestant truth of justification by faith alone. But then they say there is another justification, and it is a final justification, and it is one that takes place on the day of judgment itself after you have been glorified by Jesus Christ. And here's the caveat. It's based on the righteousness which God has worked in you. It's based on the righteousness which God has formed in you through sanctification and glorification. Now, why am I mentioning this? What's the problem with this view? Well, very simply, it makes Christ's righteousness the start of our justification, but not the end of your justification. The start, but not the end. I I think of it kind of like training wheels righteousness. Enough to get you moving on the bike, to get you started down the path. But what happens when you can ride for yourself? The training wheels come off and now you can, you can make your way. You can ride by yourself. You can now rely upon yourself. And I simply want to say we should emphatically reject any such notion like this. Emphatically reject any notion like this. No, we are always justified according to Christ's righteousness. When you believe in Jesus, you will be justified by the righteousness of Christ. On the day of judgment, you will be justified by the righteousness of Christ. It's the same justification. 
Now, why does that matter? If you're thinking to yourself, why did this guy get up here and tell me about final justification, this thing I've never even heard of? What's the purpose of this? Here's why I think it matters. Because one day, billions of years into the future, when you have been living in heaven, glorified and sinless, all of that time, you will still be humbled by the thought, I am only here because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to me. And if that righteousness were removed for you, God forbid, you would be cast out of heaven in an instant. Not that it could ever happen. You will always be reliant upon the righteousness of Christ. Our justification is always in him. Look at me at the final verse, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, but only faith working through love. So you've been freed from the law, but you've also been, in a sense, freed to the law. You've been freed to the law in Christ Jesus. Paul says, what counts now? Well, not circumcision. Not not obedience that supposedly earns us righteousness before God. No, only faith counts. But what does he say about that faith? It's a working faith, isn't it? It's a faith that works. So don't mistake what Paul is saying here. You are freed from the law's demands, but you are not free to disobey him. You're free from the burden of self-righteousness under the law, but you are not free to live however you want. The Christian is not free to sin, but they're free to obey. Instead, you are free to obey Christ in love. And that is the nature of, of saving faith, isn't it? You can see it in the great chapter of faith, Hebrews 11. Everyone does according to their faith. By faith, Abel offered a sacrifice to God. By faith, Noah constructed the ark and and took his family in. By faith, Abraham believed God and obeyed and went to the land that he was called to. That is the biblical pattern. It's faith leading to good works. It's faith which produces in you a real and present desire for holiness, a desire to follow the Lord and to obey Him more passionately. Do you have this kind of faith? Do you have a working faith? Do you have a faith which makes you want to follow your Savior even more? Bring this to a close. What is Paul saying to us? You've been set free. You've been set free from the law's demands. You are not going to be judged according to what you've done, but you're going to be judged according to the righteousness given to you in Jesus Christ. But you've also been freed in Christ and to Christ. And so now that you've been freed, use your freedom not to sin, not to disobey, Not to live how you want to live, but use it to serve the King of glory who saved you. Go and serve Him in love and in faith. Let's pray.